Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Daniil Mikhailov, Executive Director of Data.org. They are a nonprofit and they are a platform for partnerships, helping build the field of data for social impact. Very interesting organization. They embrace a socio-tech perspective, you could say. So it's not just about the tech, it's also about the humans, those who collect the data, those who use the data, those from whom the data is collected. So we're going to be taking a dive into the work they do and also the recently published report, Accelerate Aspirations which has a lot of interesting insight that we'll be sharing with you today. So without further ado, Daniil, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much, Alberto. So great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Quite the opposite. Thank you for making the time. We're both in the UK, so zero time difference for a change, which is good. And um, you're the executive director of data.org. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about data.org? What's it all about? Sure thing. So Data.org is a non-profit organization. We were founded about three years ago by the Rockefeller Foundation and MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth uh, as, a, as something very specific and, and uh, more or less unique in our sector. So we were created to be a platform for partnerships to help build the field of data for social impact. What it means in layman's terms is helping nonprofit organizations, social enterprises, NGOs, academic teams, etc., use data and data technology uh, to help their mission, to try to close the gap between how the nonprofit sector can use data and what's happening in the private sector, which is which is accelerating way. We, we are unique in, in many different ways, not just because we're a field builder, which is a, a, like a grand um, ambitious goal, but also because of the way we perceive data and technology. For us, data in all its guises, from AI to uh, the basic data management, is not just technology, it's, it's a socio-technical system. So we care about the humans who collect the data, the humans about whom data is collected, the humans who use the tools at the other end um, that are produced from this process. And that perspective, I think, permeates everything we do. It means we care about like where tools are built and who builds them. Um, because all of those things influence how the technology is made. So that's a very unique perspective to it. And it's particularly important, we think, in the social impact sector where we're not dealing with you know, optimization of the purchase of shoes, important that it is, we're dealing with real big problems, health, uh, climate change, the lack of uh, social equity, the lack of financial inclusion. For, for those big questions, we need big answers and they need to be interdisciplinary and they need to start with a human. Excellent. And so if we're drilling in a little bit and uh, based on the context that you've given us thus far, what um, what are the key sort of things that you really want to drive forward that, you know, what would success look like, right? What are the things that you're trying to change? So we just published a key report called Accelerate Aspirations. Um, it is based on uh, interviews we did in the field with practitioners um, across the world in data for social impact. And it lays out what they think, what we think, what we believe um, as the things that need to, to change in our field. So fundamentally, I think we are at a crossroads. We have all as a kind of philanthropy, as nonprofit world, 
Um, done amazing work already. Specific projects, you know, deriving, driving specific objectives. That's all good. But the crossroads we are at is how to scale it. Like how to scale it to meet the challenge of the times because the challenges we face are enormous. Uh, take any one big thing in the last few years, whether it's war, whether it's a pandemic, whether it is climate change we're all facing. Those are like big systemic challenges to our world and like small point project solutions just won't do it. They're not big enough. So the question is, how do we scale? And, and that's why in the report, very, very strong, I guess, three messages coming out. One is we need to start collaborating better, coordinating our activities. We need to invest in new data strategies, new shared services, a shared infrastructure, because the problems are so big. Second, we need to train the people operating technology and, and doing data analysis differently. Because the problems are complicated, you need interdisciplinary approaches. You need people who are bilingual, they understand the tech, but they also understand the subject matter. They understand how to deal with humans and, and how to build trust with communities. And those skills are currently not being taught at our universities. If you do a master's in data science, you'll be taught R or Python or something about data cleaning. You won't be taught how to deal with a vulnerable community and how to gain trust, how to build consent. And, and that's vital for, for, for the big projects. And number three that came out very strongly is to do all this effectively and sustain it, we need a different system of funding. So the funding at the moment in philanthropy is all geared towards specific projects. That's how we measure success and impact. And to do things at scale with, let's say, shared services, as we called out, that requires a different approach by funders. We need to create whole new methods for measuring success, um, you know, longer term funding to avoid cliff edges where, you know, we, let's say, fund a pilot and then, move away after a couple of years and what happens to that technology um that's a big problem yeah where do you start because these seem not exactly the bite size uh bits that one can do slowly right so where do you start with all of this uh great question so so this is this is in a way why we were founded by rockfell and muscat because um they realized the same thing like these are big challenges um so what they've done which is unique and big kudos to them, is they decided to create like an external organization, a platform which other philanthropies can use to coordinate it, their uh, funding activities in the space. So if you want to have you know, shared services, shared infrastructure, that means philanthropies who fund projects need to come together in some way. They need to pull funding. They need to um, have shared strategies. And therefore you need somebody to do that coordination. And that's, that's our job. So we often act as that bridge between philanthropic organizations. We work with Rockefeller, with Gates, with the Wellcome Trust, some of the biggest funders in the space, and we coordinate their work and match make them, connect them to social impact um, organizations on the ground who need support to create that more system level approach. So that's, that's, I would say, the first step is we were created very much to try and galvanize this new approach, to try to uh, share, um, share services, have a shared vision. And from then on, you uh, take small steps forward. You work towards building um, layers of shared services of connectivity in the space, try to reduce some of the fragmentation almost sector by sector or layer of technology by layer of technology. We work in open source, which means everything we do can be adopted by others. That helps because everything that is closed source event inevitably is limited, but open technologies allow others to pick up the best ideas, which is part of how we, we gain greater impact. 
Great. Fascinating stuff. So one of the areas that I really like um, to explore and, and, and I just personally find very interesting are the whole notion of collectives, um, knowledge sharing, proactively knowledge sharing and all that. So it sounds to me that you're both uh, helping these collectives and collaboratives come together and become effective and also then connecting as a, as a I wouldn't use the term market maker or, or matchmaker, but connecting these to those delivery partners on the ground and, and so forth. Does your involvement in this uh, focus exclusively on the data side or are you really looking at becoming the gel or the glue, uh, the facilitator uh, with collectives and, and with connecting with um, funders and delivery partners? It, it, it is a great question because we're certainly data focused. That's the projects we choose are around data, data-driven technologies uh, in various aspects of data. But in order for them to be successful, we need to do more than just the data. So we need, for example, to focus on building communities. I'll give you one example of, pro of a uh, program we're doing called Epiverse. So we're working with the WHO and many funders, Welcome Trust, Rockefeller, Sloan Foundation, IDSC, a big Canadian funder. Uh, we're working, having created that consortium to create open source uh, digital public goods for the community of epidemiologists. So how can they help analyze health data and other data sources to track the progress of, of what could potentially be the next pandemic and therefore prevent it? So that's a big challenge. Um, as we've all learned to our cost during the, 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 the latest pandemic, COVID-19, that field is so fragmented. Everyone, every scientist, every country has their own approach, their own set of tools. They don't interoperate very well together. That was a big limitation for us uh, in, de in dealing with the latest pandemic. So we tried to change that. Now, but to be successful there, you need not just to fund the tools, you need to fund a community effort because some of the problems that led to the fragmentation in the first place are not technical. They're problems of scientific culture. So, you know, scientists, academics are incentivized to to compete with each other. They're incentivized not to collaborate. I ironically, we need collaboration, but all the incentive structures are, I publish my own tool or my own paper, uh, therefore have the, 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 the kind of the authorship of it. So unless you start changing the culture, it doesn't change. That's why when we work with Epiverse, we invest as much funding into community aspects. We have dedicated community managers for the communities of people building the tools. We select very carefully where they're built. So, for example, we build tools not just in the global north, but in uh, in low middle income countries, the Gambia in West Africa, in in Colombia, in South America, because again, each one of those efforts brings local populations on board, understands local context. We invest in documentation, in in events and, and convenings. So, all the kind of the soft tools are as important as the hard tools. We we also fund. Do you create standards? Are you looking to set standards that maybe aren't there? So we work with others to create standards. An example would be working with WHO. So we, we've been working with them for the last couple of years and we're about to accelerate that partnership. So th they are a great um, uh, body to guide the community at large because of their kind of centralized function. Um, so that, that's one example. And we, we'll, look, we'll look for that in other fields as well beyond health and climate and financial inclusion, we often identify those partners who can give us scale, who can who have the authority to set standards um, in order to uh, to make sure that things are done in a joined up, interoperable way. Yeah. 
So you have the standards, you hopefully have everybody communicating in, in a similar way, making it as easy as possible for people to interact with each other and exchange knowledge. How do you ensure, because I know this is one of the challenges I've heard many times, how do you ensure that the knowledge that's being created and that's being shared between the different stakeholders, how do you ensure that that knowledge isn't just there for, for those who are already bought into the whole thing, but how do you ensure that the knowledge gets out proactively to stakeholders who maybe aren't aware of it and also policymakers at the time that they are making policy? How do you get that in front of these people um, when they're going to vote on something? So uh, a great, great question. It's a big challenge. Any kind of communication of, of technology or, or science is, is, al is always um, fraught with too much detail, too much technical aspects. Pe people, um, people don't get the message. So we invest a lot in communication. Uh, so in our team, we have great communicators who produce case studies and narratives, uh, impact stories to try to humanize the impact on the ground. Like what, what has the tech actually produced? I'll give you one example. Um, I was in Lagos, Nigeria just um, a month ago to visit one of our projects. So the project um, we funded um, organization called BASE who are uh, creating cold uh, change storage solutions. So farmers who have produce in markets need to uh, refrigerate their, their goods so they survive for longer. We funded them to introduce a data-driven approach. So they created um, an app interface that users of their cold storage solutions can target where basically the need is at any given time. So they can um, locate their produce where the, the customers are. Driven by data, classic example um, of like a, a technology intervention, but seeing it on the ground, the human story of it is, um, how should I put it? it? It changes my perspective straight away. So I saw where the location was. I saw how difficult it was to access um, the market in the first place. I saw the issues on the ground of people trying to carry their, their, their produce to their, to their market stall. And that made it's so much clearer for me why the cold chain storage solution was important because it was centrally located. You didn't need to travel or, or rather you traveled maybe once in three or four weeks and kept all your produce there. That reduced the, the overhead for the farmer straight away. Um, so by seeing it, it made all the difference. And I think those kind of uh, visual examples, videography, um, um, great narrative is what we need to explain the impact on the ground of data projects. The grantees um, that you mentioned here in Nigeria, um, do you would you characterize that your work normally is about funding delivery organizations or partners on the ground and letting them develop this, or is it sometimes the case that you're developing these uh, solutions in house based on the knowledge that you have from the front lines, or how would you characterize the work you do? So I would say we most often. First of all, do discovery work and help philanthropists understand where to um, put their funding in the first place. Then we work to pool the funding efforts. So we often have joint funding um, where we are funded by, let's say, three or four big philanthropies, and we then subgrant down to social impact organizations on the ground. That allows us, with great technical expertise, to direct the funding um, accurately. So. That means the grantees then do the work in, um, 
the only in-house building we do often is at the end of interoperability. So once the, the, the tool, the bit of analysis is done by the grantees, how to make sure we open source it, scale it, and learn from it and apply it in other sectors. So that's something we do in, internally. So we have we hire our tech expertise very with very particular talents for what, what's called interoperability or portability. So a tool that was designed to give you a particular example to create um, an automated uh, data flow in health in the Epi project. How can we adopt it for climate change projects? That's something we can do in house. The open source nature, the interoperability, portability, is that sort of uh, integral to your ethos? In other words, must it be like that? Or could someone say, well, yeah, you know, give us a hand, but we want to keep things a little bit uh, the IP uh, to, you know. It's absolutely integral to the ethos. So, so it's a condition of our, our funding that has to be open source. We're happy for people to build um and generate revenue off the top of the tools which are open sourced. So, so we, we, we believe in kind of a good symbiosis between private enterprise and, and the nonprofit world, but the core technology we fund must be opened. So, so for example, you can open the code um, and then have a service on top for you, which you charge. That's perfectly fine. And, and many social enterprises derive their uh, revenue in that way and uh, are able to grow faster. But the code itself, the tool itself needs to be open because then others can adopted in other geographies, which is what we actively seek to foster. So besides the standards, fair to say, then you're creating platforms that others can piggyback on and conceivably also helping drive marketplaces. Exactly. And that's a really important aspect for us. In the end, if you are just building tools, uh, you're not solving the full problem because the problem, as I said at the beginning, is socio-technical. Humans are part of it. So often in, in um, our large programs like Epiverse, we um, focus on not just tool building, but also on training um, and capacity building. So we would, in the same geography, um, partner up with a university or two and deliver, let's say, masters of data science courses. And those courses are done in a, in a very particular way. We, we believe in applied interdisciplinary learning. So the curricula have, yes, great technical skills that, that, that are being taught, but also um, skills from the social sciences or, or skills um, from the applied area that the uh, data science will be working in. So we do we do that, for example, um, at the moment in India, we're launching a partnership with a local university um, where we'll be teaching people specifically in the overlap of health and climate data with those interdisciplinary skills. Um, so that's a big part of what we do, capacity building and tool building. And the final part is how to then lever those things together and create a local ecosystem. So how to make sure that local government is involved, international organizations are involved, that students who graduate then have places in social impact organizations to, 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 ha to have a job and to apply those skills. We often come in with... Uh, initial kind of seed funding. For example, uh, we create fellowships where graduates from universities can have their first year uh, paid for in a social impact organization. And hopefully during that year, they prove the value to that organization. And that organization can then itself continue to employ them once the value is proven. But that first year is often hard. So we provide that bridge funding with, with fellowships. Every time I ask you a question, it seems that the breadth of the work that you do is just huge. It, it, it is. It often, the challenge often is um, in, in interviews like this, because we believe very strongly that you can't have a simple solution to a systemic 
problem. Uh, you know, an app won't fix climate change. Uh, it just doesn't work. And when people try in the tech industry, it, it never fails. We then approach in this interdisciplinary way. But of course, trying to bring it across in narrative is always a challenge. Explaining what we do, we do this, and we do this, and we do this, and we do this. We often use pictures. Pictures are good, I think. Visual language. Pictures are good. Exactly. The um, the people listening to the show today, yes, some some folks perhaps are uh, are at uh, charities or nonprofits, and they're thinking, okay, you know, we we'd love to get a bit of funding uh, from data.org. But put that put those folks aside for one second. W what about those who are listening who are thinking, okay, uh, I like the idea of this um, portability interoperability uh, platforms. And I'm keen to find out a little bit whether in my thematic area, whether that's health or education or nutrition or whatever it is, um, I'm keen to find out what these guys at data.org know and how perhaps I might be able to, uh, to, to avail myself of some of the insight that they have. Is there, is, there a, is there a place that they go and just start browsing? Do they need to get a hold of you and have a chat with you? Or how, how would that work? A great question. We we try to get to use our platform. We're very lucky to have a great domain name, Datalog. We um, we try to use that platform as a first entry point. So we've, we're building up a resource library there, free to use resources. Um, we have uh, the first of what's planned to be a number of free to use tools, which is called our data maturity assessment. So basically, an organization or individual can take an assessment, uh, uh, answer a few structured questions. And the tool will tell them how does their organization's data maturity compare to other peers in the same sector? Like, are you strong, stronger or weaker than the average in your sector on data strategies, on the staff you have, on the, your, your, you know, tech stack in your organization? And that's uh, another entry point. So people then are prompted once they've done that assessment to hear a few articles for you to read. Here, here are some potential connections you want to make. So it starts a conversation. So that's what one way visit our platform, uh, have a look at the free resources there, which we, we, we continue adding to. But of course, inevitably, at some point, you need a conversation. So you can do a lot of that pre-work and um, yourself, but at some point, you need to connect to us. And we, we, we always open a big part of my day and my team's day is, is having conversations with people who which start uh, in a very open way. I have this, this is what I'm doing in my organization. This is my mission. How, how can we help? Um, and then from that, we try to create interventions. But what we try to do is when we do a particular intervention, we always look at how do, how does it generalize? Because you, you can help one organization, which is, which is a great good. But if you can then, let's say, open source the tool or the approach and have 100 more organizations use it, then obviously that's that's a better uh, outcome for us. Mm. The... Um... There is a well. There are many challenges, but one challenge that I, I hear a lot about, and uh, actually seen firsthand quite often as well, is organizations, nonprofits who aren't just looking at, at you know how can they leverage data to to make an impact, but even just internally, how to manage the CRM, how to manage the dashboards, how do you man? And I've seen some projects that were built in house where they spent an inordinate amount of money and time and it's gone over budget and it's gone uh, taken much longer than expected. And um, and it seems to be a reoccurring problem for so many organizations, especially smaller ones who maybe aren't able to, to pay for the big things that they'd like. And so 
I'm just curious, you know, what, what are some of the things, the, the, the practical tools that somebody who's thinking, well, yeah, I, I could do with a dashboard. I could do with some of these things that sound easy, but sometimes you can get really complicated with. Yeah. Um, I used to, in, in my uh, prior roles in my career, I used to lead a data team in, in a nonprofit. So it, it's a, it's a problem I, I know from personal experience. Um, I, I would say there's a few things that can help. So first of all, knowing um, examples of, of good practice from your sector help. So one, one of the reasons we um, do a lot of impact stories where we tell the story of, of an organization, how they've solved this problem is to give provide those real examples. So if, if you are you know a, a leader of a, a small nonprofit organization, that's how you learn best. Like organizations similar to me in this sector have done it this way. Uh, similarly, telling stories of failures, like being open about and sharing like what hasn't worked is another important um, data point when you're trying to decide how to do it. Then beyond that, trying to do things collectively. So often you mentioned many, many organizations in our sector are very small. Um, they might not have the budget to have their own analyst and data engineer and three data scientists and the most expensive like analytics platform from Microsoft or whatever. But what we can do is begin to have those shared services. So can we have some shared resource between, let's say, a cohort of 10 social impact organizations in all working in the same field? So they, they can't afford a data scientist each, but they might, might afford four data scientists between the 10 of them. And, and, the, and then that begins to unlock things. So shared services, shared resources, that's why we think they're so important. They, they, they give this ability to organizations, which are otherwise too small, to have the same um, power of data that the big organizations can have. Yeah, I have to ask. I mean, everybody's talking about this, but um, and I imagine you've you've given it a ride. The uh, Chat GPT, uh, I, I certainly have, and I've been really impressed by the ability, and not always by the answers, because sometimes there are things that come out that aren't quite there. But um, it it really understands the subtle nuances of what I'm asking this thing. And I'm just curious, when you step back and you look at, at, at your world and the th sort of things you're doing, these sort of abilities, this sort of technology could completely transform and help the, the stuff that you're doing, right? So 100%. And that's, that's a really interesting topic to get into. Um, I, thought, I thought the question might arise. So 100%, they will, they, they will transform things. But in some, thing, some ways for the worse, in some ways for the better. And that's that's where the, the question becomes really interesting. So ChatGPT um, is doing fundamentally word prediction, but at such amazing scale and speed and sophistication that it feels like it has meaning. But of course, it doesn't have meaning. It doesn't understand what it's saying, uh, wherein the problems can happen. So basically, part of what I think we need to do to the social impact sector is to educate it about what it can be used for and what it can't. Like, yes, great tool to create some um, uh, boilerplate text to help you start off a draft to uh, uh, for, for programmers, like even website builders, to help you create the first bit of HTML code for your web, web pages for your charity. But then you always need to have a human expert in the loop to check what it's doing because it doesn't understand what it does. And because we anthropomorphize it too much, we we think or we talk about it as if it's, as if it's intelligent. That adds confusion. It, it, it isn't. It's just literally doing very, very massive prediction of if you said this, then the next word is likely to be this. 
but it's doing it at such scale that it feels like it's natural text. One limitation of it, which is which is um, particularly interesting, is it only can do things we've all done before, because what it does it ingests all our outputs. So you and I, I'm sure, of our careers have you know written lots of blog posts and and tweets. It ingests all of that. So all of our intelligence that we've contributed to the World Wide Web over the next over the last twenty years is there in ChatGPT. But what it can do, therefore, is break away from our existing intelligence, our thoughts. So the limit that it could bring to us without society even being aware of it is it limits us to what we thought before. How do we innovate beyond our thoughts? Like how do we do the blog post that wasn't like we wrote it five years ago, 10 years ago? And if we rely on it too much, then we're kind of locked in in, in that box of, of, of everything we've done so far. Where is the innovation? Glad to uh, glad to see we humans have some relevance left in us. <laughs> Absolutely, for, for the time being, anyway. The uh, you you touched on uh, a couple of things. You know, you said some of the things we've done in our careers, and then also uh, the fact that you used to be involved in a, in a nonprofit looking at data. Give us a little bit of insight into into your uh, personal narrative. How did you end up where you are today? What what drives you? So I I had a, a very zigzaggy career. Um, I started off. Um, my, when I went to university, I studied computer science and business. So I started off in tech. Then I changed almost immediately after a couple of years of working in the IT industry. Uh, this is now 25 years ago. I I, I wasn't feeling it. I, this was the pre-internet days. It was much more kind of process-driven tech. I, I was missing, I think, the human. Now I know it. I didn't know it then. But now looking back, I was missing the human element. So I left and, and retrained as an anthropologist. And then I spent 10 years in China doing field anthropology, studying traditional Chinese religions. So as far away from tech as you could possibly go. But then the funny thing is tech caught up with me because then the, the internet, um, the growth of the internet happened. This was the late 90s, early noughties. And suddenly I, I saw it. I saw the value of tech in that in my anthropology work, I was suddenly starting to write stories online and have an online magazine and blog posts about my field work. And I was posting videos you know, of, of interviews I did with, with, with amazing people in China. So I then went back to tech via the human, like via, the, via that aspect. So when I came back to the UK, I uh, then started working um, in, in a cultural institution called English Heritage, but, doing, but eventually ended up doing a tech job. So I was there web, content manager, and then ended up being the head of digital, effectively for English Heritage. So uh, building web systems uh, for them, which talked about culture, um, uh, architecture, archaeology, history, etc. Then from there, my next job was in the Wellcome Trust. I was head of digital at the Wellcome Trust. So changing from like the humanities, history and archaeology to life sciences and genetics, um, and that was uh, an amazing transition, working with so many amazing, smart people. In Welcome Trust, I then developed an interest from digital into data and data science. So I launched the first data labs, internal data labs team, um, working on their own internal data, but also started thinking about how Welcome Trust can better fund data projects externally. So went from kind of doing data to funding data. Um, and then after eight years, that led me to, to, to this role. So when DataRog was launched, uh, I heard about it. And I, thought, I thought it was perfect. Uh, a platform that doesn't just work within one funding organization, but helps support the work of many different funding organizations. 
so that's my journey. You know, started in tech, left tech, went in anthropology, but then but then went back in. I love it. The the whole zigzaggy and uh, and uh, exploring different areas, I think, is absolutely great. Um, sometimes I, I feel if somebody knows when they're 20 exactly what the rest of their career is going to look like in one firm for I, I, it seems quite depressing to me Absolutely. Uh, but no that sounds great that sounds good we um we have a lot of friends in common and uh i i notice on your uh uh fran perrin for from 360 giving uh and claudia uh schweck used to be a Rockefeller, also big on data. Um, you're connected with, I think, the right people uh, in terms of uh, data standards and uh, and trying to uh, ensure that uh, that data makes uh, you know improves the whole sustainability agenda uh, and drives it forward. Absolutely, I'm very lucky. I've made some really good friendships and partnerships over my career. Um, with Claudia, you mentioned um, Fran, so many others. Um, I think there is a growing community out of there of people who really understand that this is that crossroads moment. Like there's an opportunity for us to, to really do things in a different way with data, bring that social perspective back in. And and all, all of the people you mentioned, they, they all have, have that same perspective. Technology, yes, but technology plus people, plus human. That's, that's the way forward. So yeah, very lucky to have great partnerships. And we the problems are so big, we need all of us. Like I often work in programs with partners because nobody is smart enough on their own to solve any problem we face from climate change to, to, to pandemics. It, like, it'll take a million brains to solve to solve it. Um, Absolutely. We have to be humble enough. Absolutely. I have to ask you, is there a key takeaway that you'd love to share with, uh, with our audience? Uh, what's, the one thing you, what's the one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? So I would love them. Well, first of all, I would love them to go and read our report, Accelerating Aspirations. We, we, we've tried, you know, to distill our, our own expertise over the last three years, but also, you know, the thoughts of 40 great leaders in the field who work in the space. Um, so please read it. Um, would love feedback. Would love also people to reach out to us and, and kind of collaborate with us on, on this. But the, the, the takeaway in terms of idea from the report is this idea that in order to solve the problems we face, like big systemic challenges, we need interdisciplinary approaches. We need a whole new generation of data practitioners, purpose-driven data practitioners. We, we, we use we use as a name as a way to describe them and distinguish them. They need to have different skills um, than we're currently teaching data scientists. They need to be in different places. Like we need them to build tools in Bogota, Colombia, in, in the Gambia, in Lagos, Nigeria, not always in San Francisco, London. And, and they need to be as diverse as the populations they're trying to help. Uh, we need more women data uh, practitioners. We need more data practitioners uh, who are Black, who are uh, from uh, East Asia, from South Asia. So fundamentally, diversity in, in all its respects is needed because, because technology and data are socio-technical. If we don't have diverse builders and creators of these technologies, then how can we expect the outcomes to be anything but narrow and incomplete? I love it. Daniil, thank you so very much for, for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the show and learning about your work. It sounds like it's not just um, a, a project here or there, but you're actually on a mission to create a movement. 100%. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it.
Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great conversation with Daniil Mihailov, Executive Director of Data.org. For information about this chat and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode. I hope you found it informative, insightful, and hopefully it enthused you to take some sort of positive action and improve the world around you. Thanks so much for tuning in as always, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.